Okay, welcome to Weekly Tech Space, Tanya. What chapter are we on? 49. 49, okay. So, let's retrace our steps a little bit. Starting in chapter 41, we started to speak about the themes, the twin themes of love and all. And love and all toward whom? Hashem. Good, just checking. And how to develop love and awe. How do we develop the feelings of love and awe toward Hashem? Meditation. Meditation. And since chapter 41, we have been given many different subjects upon which to meditate. Right? And these different subjects, if you think about them, that's all meditation means, it just means thinking. If you think about them, it'll go down from your brain into your heart and you'll get an emotion. And then you'll have the love or awe of Hashem. Great. Um, we introduced one form of love meditation in chapters 46 and 47. And it was based upon a law of res- what we call, well, it's called Kamaima Panim Lapanim, but it's a law of reciprocity. What it, what it means is that we are wired that we mirror back emotions that are felt. That if somebody feels a certain way toward us, that's how we feel toward them. Now, don't tell me, well, I know someone who's not like that and you're nice to them and they're mean to you. Yeah, that's dysfunctional. I'm talking about the <laughs> normal way. Yeah, I'm talking about the normal way, okay? We're not talking about dysfunction. I'm talking about the normal way. All right. So back in 46 and 47, we said, you want to love Hashem? You want to feel more love of Hashem? Meditate on feeling loved. And if you'll feel loved, then automatically, bing, bang, boom, bop, you will feel loving. And specifically, what was the subject that we thought about in order to feel that love? Back in 46 and 47. Back, not the chapters that we've been doing now. Back in 46 and 47. The man on the garbage pile? The man on the garbage pile, yeah. But that was a metaphor. The man on the garbage pile was the metaphor for what? For us. For us, yeah. In in, in Egypt. Very good. Okay. So basically it was a meditation on the Exodus. That the Exodus was a story of Hashem displaying incredible love toward us. And when you meditate and tune into the energy of all that love that Hashem showed us, automatically there will be that kamaim haponim laponim, just like water reflects a face to a face. There will be this reflective love that we feel toward Hashem. Okay. Not okay. Not okay. All right. All right. I mean, I'm just reviewing stuff we already, we already settled all this stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, what are we feeling that he took us into Egypt? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. these are right these are the famous questions. <laughs> it's nice to feel loved that he took you out of Egypt. But we're skipping the fact that he But what? We're skipping the fact that he brought us into Egypt. Over and over Did we again? bring ourselves yeah. to Egypt? Um, well, no, actually, Hashem meticulously orchestrated a very intricate plot in order to get us into Egypt. Yeah. 
So, you're asking adult questions. You have to be ready for an adult answer. Good luck with that. Okay, well, I mean, good luck that she's ready for the answer. I have, I, oh, that, with everyone listening in. Oh, you're saying people are gonna, they're not going to let me speak on that level. It's probably true. That I've learned that, that when you say things that require a great deal of emotional maturity, it triggers half the room, which is... When we're women. No, no, no. Don't be sexist. Women generally are. We're what? We're very um, you know the difference? I'll tell you the difference between the men and the women. I don't think it's the women are more emotional. I think it's that, um, in a women's group, if it were a mixed group, it would be differently, but in a, in a women's group, when women are having a hard time processing something, they'll start processing it out loud. Yes. And when men have a hard time processing something, they get really quiet. Yeah. <laughs> so like if I'll say something confusing in a group of all men, it'll get really quiet. They go to the cave. Yeah, they go to right. the internal cave. That's why we take more than one yeah. week on a chapter. Right. Okay. All right, let's see what this does. That's why they never used to ask for directions. That's, okay. So let's, I don't want to get derailed into this because we're just reviewing the previous weeks, but... Whether you're thinking about the history of our people or you're thinking about your own particular personal life, you get to a certain point where you realize that you're not just celebrating the outcomes, especially when the outcomes are favorable and uplifting, but what you're ultimately doing is cherishing the entire process that it took to get there. So it's not just, tell me the punchline of the joke, I don't have time for the setup. No, it's take me through the whole process, and we learn to not just respect the process, but to even cherish the process. So that, that's the, 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 the short, short, short answer is that we don't just celebrate going out of Egypt. Ultimately, we cherish the Egypt experience as, as atrocious as the, as the Egypt, Egypt experience was, but we realize that that's... That was necessary, and that was part of our story, and it makes us who we are. Okay, that's the short answer. Okay. At any rate, in chapters 48 and 49, <coughs> we, we're really repeating the ideas that we learned in 46 and 47, but we're repeating it on a different level. In 48, we were, the previous chapter, we were focusing on the concept, give me the Kabbalistic term? Tzimtzum. Okay, and Tzimtzum means? Contraction. Contraction. Contraction, right. And can you give me a functional definition of it? What, what does it describe? What phenomenon does it describe? Hashem hiding himself. Concealment. Okay, Hashem, uh, Hashem concealing himself, right, so that the infinite can make room for the finite. Great, okay. Okay, creation, well, yeah, it makes creation possible, yes. So then in 49, which we started last week, but we didn't finish, we said, all right, so Hashem essentially created reality as we know it is the, um, the end result of Hashem contracting or concealing himself. So reality as we know it, reality as we think of it and relate to it, 
is really the product of Hashem concealing himself. Putting himself aside, making room for an existence other than himself, which we know is also an extension of himself because there is no true other. But it's the othering of himself, making room for another reality within his reality. It's humility. It's making space. It's allowing somebody else to have autonomy. And when we reflect on that, and we think about Hashem's experience, and it's an ongoing experience, it's happening even, even now, we know about Kamaima Panam Panam, we know that there's this reflexive reaction, or reflective, or reflexive, maybe both. So what happens when we really get tuned in to Hashem's putting himself aside in order to let us exist? We, we, we feel like, not just we put ourselves aside, we feel, we actually are emotionally congruent with it, we feel like putting ourselves aside to make room for him. Now, by the way, at this juncture, you could ask the same question you asked five minutes ago and say, uh, you know, like you said, he took us out of Egypt, but he's the one who put us in. You could say, he makes room for our existence. I never asked to exist. Okay, you can say that, and, and that's, that's valid. But we do exist. That's a fact. That's a fact. We're not going to judge whether or not we like it or not right now. Depends on the day. Depends when you ask me if I like existing or not. But it's just a fact. And the fact is also that in order for my existence to exist... Hashem has to do something to himself, so to speak. All right. So if I can absorb that thought and allow it to trickle down to my emotions, the automatic response I will have is one of wanting to make room for Hashem. That's it. That's all we're saying. Yeah. Is the process of Hashem making space equal for every being? Is the process of Hashem making space equal for every being? Not all beings take up the same space. There's more revelation of Hashem in relation to certain beings than others. Tzimtzum is not monolithic. We spoke about it last week, that there are different levels. For instance, we said there are four worlds. Each one of those worlds is distinct from the other based on how much Tzimtzum there is. Okay. And we spoke about Mamale and Saivev, right? Mamale is the filling light that has to conform to the capacity of the limited created being. Remember these concepts? So obviously, each limited created being has a different capacity, and so the different degree of symptom. Right? That answers your question? Okay. Fine. So, we sort of left off. I was, remember, I was pushing to finish chapter 49, because I just want to get done with this. just want to be done. And you know why I want to be done? Not because I don't like learning this. I love learning this, but... Because we have a due date. Well, 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 yeah, that's also in the back. Of, yeah, okay, okay. But I'm trying not, I'm trying not to let the, the due date... I, I would like to finish the 53 chapters by Yotes Kislev, but that's not what I'm really... I'm, I'm not allowing that to drive me consciously. Because we um, have questions in chapter 3, and the answer 
we ask questions in three that are not answered till 52. Yeah, well, that's sort of what I mean. What I mean is I'm a big believer that you should have some type of uh, cognitive closure, like beginning, middle, and end thought process. So I much prefer finishing a discussion so you can walk away and have, have a handle on what you just learned rather than nitpicking the details. There's different styles of learning, but I, I like to finish a subject and then you can walk away saying, okay, I, I might not know it that deeply, but I have the general contour of the subject. Okay, so I, I like to finish, but we didn't finish uh, because what happened is we got to this like bombshell concept. And I suppose, you know, different people could consider it a bombshell concept for different reasons. And maybe I'll get into that a little bit. But it's basically about Jewish chosenness. Jewish chosenness is an idea that is, that is widely discussed, heatedly discussed, probably most of the time for all the wrong reasons. I don't even think people understand what it means when they refer to the concept. I don't think most Jews know what it means when they refer to the concept. So I would like to ask you to try to forget everything you know about the subject and just hear what we're saying here without any prejudice. We were explaining how Hashem creates the world through Tzimtzum, which means he sets himself aside, so to speak. Obviously not really, because there's no place devoid of him. But he conceals himself to such a, a degree that it's like putting himself aside to make room for the creation. And specifically, as we said, the end goal of creation. What's the end goal of creation? The, the, this, well, you said Mashiach, and I don't want to say no because that's always the right answer. Mashiach is always the right answer. <laughs> and and, and <laughs> Mashiach is the and Dirabatahtoinim, a dwelling place in the lower realms. Those are both correct, but I, I wasn't going that far, but those are all correct. I, I was saying more in general the physical world. Now, Mashiach is a phenomenon that occurs in the physical world. Dirabatahtoinim, a dwelling place in the lower realms. Lower realms means the physical world. But to create the. Okay. Okay, so the purpose of all Seder that means that process of concealment, after concealment, was to create the physical plane, and then within the physical plane, yes, the physical body. Okay, the physical body. So the whole end game of this divine concealment was to create the body so that the body can serve Hashem. Now, having a body, a real physical body, is a phenomenon which is unique to the physical plane. Now, materialists don't really appreciate that sentence because for a materialist, the only reality is the physical plane. So when you say a phenomenon is unique to the physical plane, it, it sort of doesn't mean anything. It's a truism because all phenomena occur in the physical plane to a materialist. Um, do you know that most educated people today are materialists? Yes, okay. So, in other words, if it doesn't occur in the physical world, if we cannot empirically observe it, it doesn't exist. Is That's true, is true true or just the true worldwide or just Western culture. Um, 
I think, unfortunately, Western culture is so dominant that it may be on not planet Earth. It might not be. Um, you're saying quality or quantity? I'll, I'll just say that the power is with that belief. Okay, what is considered um, the enlightened way of being is to be a materialist and to believe that there is nothing but the physical world. By the way, that's a relatively new development, only the past like 150 years. None of the people who, for instance, invented the scientific, the scientific method were materialists. But ironically, science became the big uh, weapon for arguing materialism. Okay, I don't want to get sidetracked. This is one of my <coughs> topics that I get very, very... I, I, I have a fascination with this topic, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some symptom on myself. <laughs> the point is that we said the physical body or embodiment is a phenomenon which is unique to the physical realm. The physical realm is the end, is the last stop on the train of Seder Stauslis, the chain-like process of world-building, of concealments, com compounded upon concealments. And why is that the, the end game, so to speak? Because Hashem's ultimate purpose is to have this relationship with the physically embodied Jew. Remember, we existed before the creation of the world. In fact, the world was created because Hashem wanted to embody the Jewish people. But they were not the people as we know people today. The Jewish people were a spiritual entity. And I say a singular spiritual entity, not entities, plural, because really, as we know and we've learned, the Jewish people are one soul, ultimately, projected into many bodies. But, but at any rate, the point is the purpose of all of creation was to bring about the embodiment experience of the Jewish soul. Now we said... And, and, and what is the embodiment experience? It means to serve God through a body, at first perhaps in spite of a body, and then ultimately uh, because of the body. So it means all of the resistance that the body brings with it, the body's desires, which we call the animal soul, which are survival instincts and often run counter to divine morality, and also just having to overcome the various issues that occur in a physical world where there are often um, obstacles to serving Hashem. And Hashem wants us to do physical mitzvahs, not just to think about His will, but to physically carry out His will. And that's the end game. That's the whole point. Yeah. So then why did He create nine Jews? Why did He create nine Jews? Great question. I think it's a better question, why did he embody the non-Jews? Souls, souls without bodies. Angels aren't embodied, generally speaking. There are plenty of things that exist in God's worlds, plural, uh, that are not physically embodied. Besides the angels? Is the non-Jewish soul different than the Jewish soul? 
Is a non-Jewish soul different than a Jewish soul? That is the only difference. The soul. The soul. That, when, somebody commented on a YouTube video of mine recently. Somebody took a clip from a talk of mine. And always, when you have a clip, you run the risk of being misunderstood. I, I, in a talk, I said, you know, what is Judaism? Is it a religion? But we have Jews who renounce Judaism as their religion, or they, they are uneducated, they're uneducated about Judaism as their religion, and yet they're still Jews. So it's not a religion. I said, you know, is it, is it uh, an ethnicity? You know, there, there are Jews who don't conform to any of the ethnic the typical descriptions of an ethnicity, you know, they don't eat bagels and locks, they don't speak Yiddish, or like what, what, what's ethnically Jewish? Uh, is it even a biology? I mean, throughout the, uh, for sure 2,000 years in, in exile, we have different uh, DNA streams, which, I mean, going back to the time of the, 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 the Roman times, there were many uh, converts to Judaism. So, yeah, uh, typically most Jews do have DNA that goes back to uh, the land of Israel, but we have others who don't. And then, conversely, very sadly, because of intermarriage, there are non-Jews who have DNA because of matrilineal descent being what determines Jewish identity. There are non-Jews who have, unfortunately, because a Jewish man who married a non-Jewish woman, um, they, there are non-Jews who have Israelite DNA. And they're not Jewish. So I, I mentioned that it's funny because Jewish status doesn't conform to ethnicity or biology or, or, or religion. So, like, how do you define it? And somebody commented, like, in a very indignant way, this is absurd. There's basically no definition of Judaism then. And therefore, and I love where he went with it because you could tell this guy just wanted to be anti-Semitic because he said, and therefore nobody should be called anti-Semitic today. Because if there's no definition of Jew, then there's no definition of anti-Semitism, which that reveals what he really wanted in the end. It's like, okay, but, um, and then I kind of regretted that there was this clip because the clip can be misunderstood. But what is the definition of a Jew then? The definition of a Jew is the presence of a Jewish soul. Well, how does one get this Jewish soul? Well, there are only two ways. Is either you were born from a Jewish mother or you converted according to halacha. Those are the only two ways. So Jewish status or Jewishness is a metaphysical condition, which is why there are Jews with light skin and blonde hair and there are Jews with dark skin and black hair. It's interesting. <sighs> I was speaking yesterday. <clears throat> to someone on the Soul Words team whose grandparents were born in Yemen. And we were saying how absurd it is that in America they frame the whole uh, Israel thing in American racial terms. They think it's the white people versus the non-white people. And she's saying how absurd that is because, you know, according to American racial constructs, she's black. According to Torah, She's Jewish, okay? But the world doesn't see that. So the world will ignore a black Jew or a dark-skinned Jew because that doesn't fit the, the construct that the American discourse or the whole Western discourse fits into. So in, in, in today's world, people see things in racial terms. According to Torah, 
that's not how it's viewed. Uh, there are Jews who are racially from various different backgrounds. That's not what really determines anything significant about them. Uh, ultimately, what's the decisive factor is the presence of that Jewish soul. Yeah? So God created Adam. Yeah. His intention was to create a being that was going to reveal divinity. Yeah. Okay, so this is always the question, like, well, what is the role of non-Jews within Judaism? And again, this is difficult for people who are coming from other worldviews, and they're trying to make the Jewish worldview fit into other worldviews. In any other religion, basically, you either belong to that religion or you get destroyed in the end days, in every other religion. Not in Judaism. In Judaism, there is world peace. And it specifically speaks about the nations. The nations means the non-Jewish nations, the non-Jews. Which, by the way, the word is the goyim, which has become this, like, boogeyman, where people assume it has this pejorative connotation. It just means the nations. And our prophets speak about when Mashiach comes, there will be world peace among the nations. The Goyim will have peace. There will be peace among the nations. So in the Jewish worldview, the perfect world, the perfect peace that will happen in the Messianic era, era and by the way, the whole world who speaks about the Messianic era, meaning Christians and Muslims who are influenced by Judaism, they should know that the concept of Mashiach is, is a Jewish concept. So trust us when we tell you what Mashiach means, we know what we're talking about. When Mashiach comes, there will be peace for all nations, not just Jews. Not just Jews. So the question is, well, what is the purpose, what is the role for non-Jews? And, and the answer is, well, somebody has to be normal. And I'm not trying to be funny. I, I don't say it to be cute. It, I don't think it's cute. I don't think there's anything cute about it. I'm not saying it, I'm not playing it for a laugh. Somebody has to be normal. And what do I, what do I mean by normal? Normal means, what does normal mean? Okay, that's a good question. And you know something? Jews don't know what normal means. No, we don't. So I'm going to explain to you what normal means. Normal means to be a normal human being. You live a good moral life and you make the world a better place. That's what normal means. Okay. And that is the purpose of human beings. That's what non-Jews are for. They are to live a good moral life, to live a productive life, to contribute to society, to make the world run more smoothly and in a more just and fair way. Just to, to be a good person. Now, sometimes Jews try that. And Jews say, well, I just want to be a good person. Why can't I just be a good person? Or sometimes Jews say, why can't I marry him or her, who's a person who's non-Jewish? They're a good person. Well, I'm sure they're a good person, but that's not the point. Being Jewish has an extra dimension that is 
Now, now here's where the anti-Semites will say, aha, so you just admitted being Jewish is not about being a good person. Okay. You want, okay. You know you're a counterpart. What? I'm used to it now. Okay. Being Jewish, it's not enough to just be a good person. Being Jewish includes a whole bunch of weird stuff that I'm going to say right now. If you're not Jewish and you hear this, you can either choose to have contempt toward it because you don't understand it, in which case, yes, you're an anti-Semite, but just I'm not condemning you. I'm, I don't even say it with any like bitterness today. It's like, okay, so he's an anti-Semite. Okay, whatever. It's just like a, okay, no problem. But if, if you're, okay, so I'm going to explain something to you. A Jewish person cannot fulfill his or her purpose just by being a good person. Now, obviously, you have to be a good person. Yes, you have to be moral. You have to be a good person. Okay. But there's an extra dimension that goes beyond that. And without that, the Jewish person is not fulfilling his or her purpose. All right. And like I said, if you're not Jewish and you're listening to this, if you res respond to this with contempt, you're an anti-Semite. If you respond to it with confusion, you're normal. Um, if you respond to it with curiosity, you're a tzaddik. There's something called tzaddike uma sa'ilam, the righteous of the nations. The, right, the righteous of the nations just means somebody, a normal human being, a non-Jewish human being, who hears weird things about Jews, and instead of being uh, suspicious or upset, they can just be curious and say, hmm. You don't even have to like it. You just have to say, hmm. That's unusual. And then you are the righteous of the nations. But maybe he was a Jewish soul to begin with and came back as a non-Jewish soul. Oh, and that's why... non-Jew, I don't know. Maybe that's yeah, that's a fluke that happens. That's, not, that's, not, that's not a regular thing. Okay. The Jewish purpose of embodiment is not just to be a regular human being who lives a decent moral life and makes society a better place. Jews also have to use their embodiment to do weird things, which generally, if we were using non-Jewish terms, we would describe as um, religious rituals. And these ri religious rituals do not have any empirical value. Some of them do. Some of them happen to Some of them happen to be similar and appear like regular humanitarian acts, like tzedakah, right? Charity, <coughs> supporting the poor. So that's a mitzvah. It's one of those weird things that we do, but it looks normal because all people, all good, decent human beings give charity. But then there's stuff that has no corollary, like putting on tefillin. Like, what's the value of putting leather boxes with parchment in it? What's the, what, how does that make the world a better place? Well, how does it? Because it's God's will. And when we carry out God's will with our physical bodies in the physical realm, we make the physical world more aligned with God's will. So there's a refining effect that that has. And in fact, the world peace that we're looking forward to, how do you think that comes about? Not because the UN got together and figured out how to make peace. The world peace comes through the refinement of the physical world, through enough Jews doing their 613 mitzvahs that it refines the physical world, and then the physical world becomes a place of peace. 
There's other weird things also, by the way. Shabbos. You're going to say, well, how is Shabbos weird? Everybody rests when they're tired. Exactly! When they're tired! You ever had Shabbos coming in Friday afternoon and you're like, I'm not ready for Shabbos. If Shabbos were about resting when you're tired, then we would do it exactly when it works for us. Shabbos is a weird thing. Shabbos is, I'm not going to try to make the physical world a better place. I'm going to disengage from the physical world. Well, why the heck are you an embodied soul if you're not here to constantly be making the world a better place? And the answer is, if you're a regular human being, meaning a non-Jewish human being, then rest when you're tired, but don't have a day of rest because it would be ridiculous and wasteful to disengage from trying to make the world a better place. But Jews have this extra dimension of doing these things that are not normal things. And one of the things we do is we have to be in tune with that seventh day of rest, which God did on the seventh day of creation, um, and, and disengage from making the world a better place. And, uh, yeah, that's not a normal thing. In other words, you don't have to have, you don't have to rest on the seventh day to be a moral person. In fact, an argument could be made that it's, is this inflammatory? It's, it's, it's immoral. Why are you not, why, if you're not tired and you don't need to rest, why are you taking a break from improving the world? And that's why, if you're not Jewish, you really shouldn't disengage from improving the world on the seventh day. Okay, and all types of stuff that we do that are physical actions, but they're not, they're not actions which, empirically speaking, physically improve the world. Now, you could call the hocus-pocus and superstition and all you want. That's fine. That's fine. That's okay. I'm, I'm really, I don't mind that. Because there are people who are believers, there are people who are not believers. So if you're a materialist and you want to say, well, I think it's weird that Jews do a bunch of ritual stuff that really doesn't have any value that we can empirically observe, okay, no problem. But what I'm telling you is the Jewish chosenness, the special mission that the Jewish people were chosen for is to do that stuff in addition to being a regular moral person, but it's not enough to just be a regular moral person. You have to do all these strange rituals. Yes? So why are we working so hard to meditate on loving Hashem so that we could do these strange rituals? Why don't we just do the strange rituals? Okay, that's a wonderful question. The question was, why are we working so hard in Tanya to meditate to create enough love and awe to motivate ourselves to do these strange rituals? Why don't we just do the strange rituals? And the answer is sort of, we do both. Sometimes, fake it till you make it is the right approach. Just start doing mitzvahs, and your mind and heart will catch up. Other times, like we've been studying in Tanya for the past several chapters, it's about from the inside out. It's an inside job. First, get it cognitively and then emotionally, and then, it'll, then it, it, it will come out behaviorally. And both approaches are, are necessary. We do both. Is it fair to say it'll, is it true to say it'll come? Let's say you have like a young man who's working towards like learning, like wants to learn, but is not feeling connected, is feeling totally disconnected. Is it fair to say, keep doing it, it'll come? Or is it more accurate to say, you don't have to feel it, but this is 
The, the, everything you said is true. So I would tell somebody, keep doing it, it'll, you'll eventually feel it. Is that true? Yeah. But you, no, there's no guarantee. Of yes, there is a guarantee. Yes. Yes. But you're asking this question in a very black and white way as if there's one definition of feeling it and there's one definition of not feeling it. Obviously, these things exist on a spectrum. In other words, you might feel it a little bit more today than you did yesterday. These things are nuanced. Okay, so now let's finish this chapter. Let's go. Okay. And you chose us among all the nations and all the languages. That choosing refers to God choosing the physical, he calls it coarse body, which appears identical to all human bodies in its coarse state. The choosing is not that Hashem chose the Jewish souls for a unique mission. He did not choose the Jewish souls for a unique mission. The Jewish souls were inherently created for that mission already. He chose a group of bodies to put those souls in. So he looked around the world and he said, let's take those bodies and put these souls in. In there. Choosing, as Chassidus explains often, has to be a fiat. It has to be a whim. In other words, it is not, it's not selection based on pros and cons. Choosing, which is an awful translation, but bechira is the Hebrew word. Bechira means ini mini mini mo. It means Seemingly random selection. I just chose it because. Meaning there's no compelling reason. So if you say, do you want orange juice or do you want Coca-Cola? That's not choosing. That's figuring out which one of the two I want and then asking for the one that I want. I, I'm, I'm, no, I'm not in the mood for orange juice right now. I'm in the mood for a Coke. But if you say, there are two cups of Coke in front of you, exactly the same temperature, exactly the same cup, exactly the same amount of ice, exactly the same distance from your hand, which one do you choose? That's choosing. So Hashem didn't choose the Jewish souls. The Jewish souls were already made for a unique purpose. He chose the bodies which are regular human bodies, in which to put the Jewish souls so that they could do their embodiment thing. So why did he create non-Jewish souls? We said already. To be normal people that make the world a better place. Is this constantly happening? Everything is constantly happening. I'm saying as someone's being born, let's say, so like the soul is already created, so Hashem says, okay, now this body he's choosing to create this way into Oh, um, no, no, the, 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 the event was at the giving of the Torah at Sinai, and it was a watershed event that never occurred before and never will occur after. The choosing that we're referring to happened specifically at the giving of the Torah at Sinai, seven weeks after the Exodus. And you brought us close in order to praise you, 
Yisbar b'makim acher. What does it mean to praise Hashem? It's explained elsewhere. Liyachedachochulu and to unify your name. Lakolo b'yichude yisbarich kniskela el. He explains it here. To unify you means to become one with your unity, meaning to surrender to you and become subsumed within you. Now you're going to say we were one with him before we were embodied. We were more one with him. Yeah, but by default, not by any action of our own. That's the whole point here: is that we transcend the embodiment condition to reunite with Hashem. So when a, an intelligent person will think about these things deeply in the depths of his mind and heart, or heart and mind, automatically this will trigger the as a water reflects a face to a face. Remember, that's the whole point here. This is not a philosophical treatise here to discuss what does it mean uh, that God chose the Jews. That's, his, he's, that's the, not the point he's explaining right now. He's mentioning that concept in order to help you to have a meditation or a subject of meditation that will trigger a love of God. So you think to yourself, oh, God chose me. I should feel like choosing God. That's it. Okay. Well, the meditation is conscious. The meditation is conscious, meaning you have to choose to think about it. But if we were intellectually talking about this, I could debate why I was Correct. Yeah. I have to feel it in my heart. Right, right. Well, the point is that if you do get it on a cognitive level, then it will affect you on an emotional level. But it's not like a deliberate thing like, oh, come on, feel something, feel something. But when you're in a meditative state, you bypass intellect. And so you're able to feel it more, and then it tries Okay, that's correct. And, and, and that's what I mention all the time, and I'm not sure people ever got it. You cannot use this class as a substitution for your meditation. In this class, we're more in a, in a discussion mode. The meditation is take a walk around the block and just let things seep in. All right, so then, your soul will ignite with a great generous spirit toward Hashem and you'll want to abandon all your personal interests that distract you from Hashem and you'll want only to cleave to Hashem in a manner of kisses and hugs which we spoke about earlier. Remember chapter 45. The kisses, mouth-to-mouth, that is learning his Torah, speaking his words of Torah. The hugs is the body-to-body doing his mitzvahs. So the point is that when you meditate on these concepts, it will ignite in you a passionate desire to leave aside all self-interest and desire only closeness with him. Now he spells it out. What does it mean to cleave Breath to breath, spirit to spirit. This is what it says in the Shema, that these words should be on your heart and you should speak about them. In other words, it's not enough to say, oh, I love God so much. Okay, beautiful. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to translate that into behavior? So here we're saying, learn his Torah, say his word. Like it says in Eitzchayim, which is a Kabbalah Sefer, uh, that kisses means that to, to unite the Chabad to the Chabad. Chabad is the Chochman bin Adas, the intellectual faculties of the person, aligning themselves with the Chabad, the intellectual faculties of Hashem, which happens, how, how do you do the mind meld? Remember, 
Spock's Vulcan mind meld. How do you do the mind meld with Hashem? Is through learning Hashem's thoughts. Where are Hashem's thoughts? In His Torah. Thank you very much. And how do you do the mouth to mouth? Who makes a haruach vigiluya ibebechinis gilu vahainu bechinis hadibar bedivre toira ki al makes a pi Hashem yichia haadam. Matching up mouth to mouth is simply saying Hashem's words, saying words of Torah. However, that's not enough. It's not enough to just say, I mean, not enough to think the words. You have to articulate them. You actually have to move your mouth. You have to use your physical organs of speech. You have to move your actual mouth in order to have that energy become embodied and physicalized. Um, he explains here, yeah, he talks about the Datsach, Damon Chai, about the inanimate, the vegetative, and the animal. <coughs> When you're learning Torah, it cannot remain a purely spiritual experience. Remember, the entire point of creation was the embodiment. So if you're just studying Torah but thinking it, you're just using your brain to think it, then it lacks that physical impact. So you have to actually physically move your mouth and say those words, vocalize those words, um, in order that it should translate into that refining effect on the physical world. This is a heck of a statement right here. That when you physically, when you translate the words of Torah into physical speech, what happens? You're causing, we learned about this back in, in chapters 35, 36, 37, all of the physical resources that you consume and now you're using and expending in your Torah study are now becoming subsumed within that act of connecting to Hashem and now they're all becoming elevated. So really what's happening is the whole supply chain that you have used as a consumer in order to be here, you know, the water that you drank, the food that you ate, even the, the house that you live in, the car that you used to drive here, you're elevating that whole thing to Hashem and then what he says is then the glory of God will be revealed and all flesh will see. What does that mean? The glory of God will be revealed and all flesh will see. All flesh will see means all humanity. In fact, not only all humanity, but even the animal kingdom will see. But it means there will be an objective revelation of godliness in the world. It will not be a subjective enlightenment for chosen few. No. What's the big deal about that? You do that now. It will be an objective occurrence that all humanity will observe. And the way that that happens, how will this revelation be something that all humanity is able to objectively observe because it'll be a physical phenomenon. And why will it be a physical phenomenon? Because the actions that brought it about were physical actions, meaning Torah and mitzvahs that are done in physical ways, which is the whole point, again, of the embodiment. <laughs> That's the point of all of the worlds. Is that godliness should be revealed in the physical world? To transform or to um, convert 
darkness to light and bitter to sweet, as mentioned before. In other words, to take the physical world, which at first glance is antithetical to godly revelation, and to make that the plane of existence with the greatest godly revelation. In other words, that the physical plane becomes more of a place of godly revelation than the highest heavens. That's the whole purpose that we exist for, is to draw down the infinite into the physical plane. But in order to draw this down, we first have to offer something up, and that is the act of surrender. So we give up our self-interest to attach to God, and then what are we able to do after we've given up our self-interest? We've surrendered ourselves. We've given, we've given ourselves up to God. Then we're able to draw down godliness into the physical world. And the sum total of that effect is a world of peace and harmony for all people. So, yeah, and it doesn't mean that then all the people will have to start putting on tefillin. No, we'll put on the tefillin. We'll put on the Jewish people. We'll put on the tefillin and everyone else will enjoy a world of peace and harmony and safety and prosperity. Okay? All right, that's the end of chapter 49.